Well, this morning uh, we will be returning to our study on the gospel according to Mark. And it's been a couple of months now. We've had a few diversions along the way, important diversions that have, that have come up and that we've needed to uh, deal with, uh, most particularly in the last two weeks, uh, focusing on the Reformation and the, the rediscovering of the gospel and the celebration of that 500-year anniversary. Well, let's uh, just take a few seconds to, to get our bearings again as we, we uh, delve back into Mark's gospel. And uh, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 1, and uh, let's just have a little bit of a review here, because in the first 13 verses of chapter 1, Mark has, has outlined essentially the preparation uh, of the gospel Chapter 1, verse 1 is really the heading for the whole of Mark's work here. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In that one little sentence, uh, we see that the gospel includes the humanity of Jesus, his, his royalty and his royal work as the Christ, and his deity, the full deity as the Son of God. Then in verses 2 to 3, we see that this gospel, this good news has not just randomly appeared in history. It's not a fallback plan of God after everything fell apart after the fall. No, this has been the sovereign plan of God for all eternity past. And we can see that uh, as it's prophesied in Scripture. Even so much so that it prophesied a forerunner of the Lord to come, preparing the way for the Lord. In verses 4 to 8, we see the ministry of that forerunner, John the Baptist. And here he came into the wilderness preaching a message of repentance, a message to prepare people's hearts for the arrival of the Lord, to turn away from their sin and turn back to God. And the expression of that was to be found in their submission to the waters of baptism, a sign, a picture of the repentance that had taken place in their hearts. But John the Baptist preached that one greater than himself was coming, one who would bring an inward change, an inward baptism that was far more important than the outward picture. This one would bring the baptism of the Holy Spirit and not a a second blessing, but the indwelling presence of the third person of the Trinity. And through that, an empowering for ministry. Then in verses 9 to 11, this awaited Lord arrives. And he identifies with those he came to save by undergoing the waters of baptism uh, Submitting to John the Baptist, being baptised among the rest of them. Not because he had anything to repent of, but because he was identifying with those he came to save. His own identification uh, was affirmed by the voice from heaven. The Father declaring, this is my son whom I love. Of course, that identity was then tested in verses 12 to 13. Tested in the wilderness by Satan, the accuser. We see Christ emerges victorious. 
As Mark leads us into the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we move now from a a preparation of the gospel to a proclamation of the gospel. As we see in the following chapters, the words and the deeds of Christ himself. And so today we come to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and here we see how this activity all starts. And we read... Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark has shown us already in chapter 1, verse 1, that the gospel centers on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in a wider sense, the good news concerns the arrival of the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of God? What does it mean that it has arrived and what implications does its arrival have for us? Well, We're going to address all these matters as we look at this passage over the following two weeks. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so as we look at this passage, we'll see that it has arrived in the person of Jesus. It has arrived in the passion of Jesus. And it has arrived in the preaching of Jesus. This morning, our focus will be on the kingdom being at hand in the person of Jesus. In Mark's Gospel... Uh, He records John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance. But in Matthew's gospel, Matthew uh, records the wider reason that John called for repentance. In Matthew 3 verse 2, we see John the Baptist proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For John the Baptist, the kingdom being at hand meant it is near It is almost approaching upon us. When Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is at hand, he means it is here now. In Luke's gospel, he records Jesus heading into the region of Galilee and then entering a synagogue in the town of Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it says that Jesus read the following from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus was handed the scroll of Isaiah and he read out this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Those are the opening verses from Isaiah 61. Well, what happened next? And Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What is he going to say? And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Something significant happened when Jesus began his public ministry. 
Back in Mark's Gospel, we read Jesus' words that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now this word for time here is not referring to a chronological time, but an appointed time, an appointed season. It refers to the perfect timing of God brought about in this particular historical moment. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5, when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the appointed time, and it has arrived in the person of Jesus. But what is the kingdom of God? What is this that Jesus speaks of, that Jesus proclaims has arrived in himself? Well, the word translated in English as kingdom has two senses. Its primary sense refers to a reign, a rule. It's the reign of God the King. But it has a secondary sense as well. And that refers to the realm, the realm of God's kingship. See, a king necessarily has a realm in which he exercises his reign. But the reign of God is the primary sense that we think of when we hear these words, the kingdom of God. This can be seen in in passages such as Psalm 145, which we had read earlier to us today. Let me read again from Psalm 145, verses 10 to 13, say this. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations his kingdom here is primarily his dominion not the domain you can see that how it's contrasted between kingdom and his works we see this again in psalm 103 verse 19 says the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all now god's kingdom is his redemptive rule, his saving will in action. There's nothing passive about this rule. It is an active rule. Now, there is not a single second when God has not been king of his creation. Psalm 145 verse 13, again, says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not a single second when God is not king of his creation. But in the reality of life, we see that his kingship is not everywhere acknowledged. 
And so, as one theologian has said, God is now king. And he must become king. His kingship must be manifested in this world. It must become evident. Well, this reality was experienced firstly by the people of Israel. Uh, While the phrase, the kingdom of God, or its exact equivalent, the kingdom of heaven, there's no difference between those two. Uh, While this phrase is not mentioned specifically in the Old Testament, the concept certainly was. I mean, we've seen that in Psalm 103 and Psalm 145. Moreover, the Old Testament writers, they longed for a time when God would establish his perfect rule over the whole earth. Listen to these prophetic words from some of the prophets. From Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What about Isaiah's prophetic word from God in chapter 65 verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. This was the hope of the people. It was also the promise of God that this would come (coughs) to place. But as we look further in the scriptures, we see that God's sovereign saving rule would be established through a king. And a king specifically from the line of the great Israelite king, David. To Samuel verse, oh sorry, chapter seven, we read of God's covenant that He made with King David. Verses twelve to thirteen, God says this to King David: When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. This promise, this covenant with David is picked up many times throughout the scriptures. In the prophetic words of Isaiah, we see this very clearly in Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet says this, famous words that I'm sure will be heard in the following months as we head towards Christmas. Isaiah 9 Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Interestingly, who is this prophecy directed towards? If we look to the first two verses, we see that this is a hope given towards the people in the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And to them in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Light has emerged in this new king. These words are quoted in Matthew 4 at the beginning of Jesus' 
public ministry. So this future king from the line of David came to be known as the Messiah. Another term is the son of David, which we see that come across in the scriptures. The Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, is equivalent to the Greek of Christ. And it means anointed one. In Psalm 2, we read this. Why do the nations and rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now in the Old Testament, kings, prophets, priests uh, could all be anointed by God for service to him. But the term anointed became a title for the one, the preeminent one who was to come. Now in the opening of Mark's gospel account, he has made, aware, made us aware that this Messiah, this Christ, is in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, in his own proclamation uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, was declaring that truth to the people of Galilee. God's redemptive reign promised in the Old Testament was now entering history through the king, through the Messiah, through himself. Now, Jesus refers to the inbreaking of God's saving rule as the gospel, as the good news. But the question is, how does that relate to the fact that the gospel is specifically about his own person and his own work? Well, the good news is that people may enter the kingdom by submitting to the king. People may experience God's saving rule by trusting in the Saviour. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and we'll see that this connection is made very clear. From verse 17, Jesus encounters a rich young man who comes to him wanting to know what he should do to inherit eternal life. That's the question in verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then down in verse 21, Jesus tells the man to let go of his covetous desires and his pride and come follow me. Then in verse 24, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? To inherit eternal life is to follow Jesus, is to enter the kingdom of God. You can't get to the Father without going through the Son. John fourteen six, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin after uh, him and John had healed the lame man and they were dragged before the Sanhedrin, they ended up preaching to them and they said this in Acts 4, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's pointing to the Sanhedrin at the time. The builders 
which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is only found through faith in Christ. So the kingdom of God primarily refers to the redemptive reign of God, his saving work and authority. But a king, as we've noted, necessarily has a realm in which to exercise his reign. And in the wisdom of God, there are stages in which God reveals his rule to this world. The first stage is in his people. And by extension of that, the church. Mark chapter 10, prior to his engagement with the rich young man, the disciples had uh, stopped people bringing their young children towards him. And Jesus said this in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. As we've already seen, to receive the kingdom of God, to enter into it, is to submit to the king. Now God's dynamic rule is operative in the realm of his people, in the lives of his people. It's not referring to a childish faith. A childlike faith is not a childish, foolish faith. But a childlike faith is a deep trust in Christ. Moreover, the people collective as the church, the body of Christ, is where we see the kingdom manifested. God's reign exhibited to this world. The church is not the kingdom The church is a witness to the kingdom. We are witnesses to God's saving work. However, his people still live in the realm of this world, a fallen world that is currently under the power of the prince of the air, Ephesians 2 verse 2, that is Satan. And so we look forward to a time When the fullness of God's reign is seen not just in the lives of his people, but over all of creation. And so secondly, God's realm extends to the new heavens and the new earth. At the end of this age, God will destroy the devil and his minions, destroy sin and death. He will cast off the unredeemed into torment in hell before the redeemed they will experience the blessedness of entering into the new heavens and the new earth just like Isaiah testified to those words in Isaiah repeated in Revelation 21 the beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more crying or tears or pain perfection where we too will be glorified in body and spirit. Now, some Christians affirm that there is also a third realm in which God's reign will be exercised, a realm 
that exists prior to the establishing of the new heavens and the new earth. And that is the millennial kingdom. Uh, In Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, which we had read earlier to us, the Apostle John sees this vision of what happens when Christ returns. The devil will be bound, then a period of thousand years will occur through which Christ reigns on earth with all his people. All his people having experienced bodily resurrection, a a period of peace and prosperity. At the end of this period, the devil will be released and a final battle will take place in which Christ will end uh, by throwing the devil into hell for all eternity. The rest of humanity will be raised physically to life and then judged and thrown into hell as well. Only after this happens will the new heavens and new earth be established. That's Revelation 20. (coughs) The question is, are we supposed to take this passage literally or figuratively? And that's the question that is really at the heart of the different views regarding uh, the end times that we may come across. Those who say it's figurative uh, say that it refers to Christ's reign now. Uh, All the things that are speaking of in Revelation 20 are a picture of Christ's reign now. The first resurrection being a spiritual resurrection where Christ saves his people, regenerating new life in them. And the second resurrection referring to a physical bodily resurrection. Uh, This position is known as amillennialism. uh, The the R or amillennialism. The R being... Uh, no literal millennium. It's a figurative sense of what Christ is doing now. Those who say it's a literal uh, interpretation are called premillennialists. Uh, that is, the millennial reign of Christ uh, occurs prior to the new heavens and the new earth being established. Premillennialism can also be uh, distinguished into two categories. Uh, there's dispensational premillennialism or there's classic or historic premillennialism. The difference between these views uh, has to do with the relationship between Israel and the church. Essentially, uh, dispensationalism holds that the promises given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament uh, will be literally fulfilled by the nation of Israel. And as such, they hold a distinction between Israel and the church. Whereas classic premillennialists hold that the Old Testament promises to Israel are fulfilled through the church, through those who trust in Christ. These are the true Israel. Now, I personally am convinced that the scriptures teach a classic premillennial view. Um, Firstly, that the Old Testament promises to National Israel will be fulfilled through the church. As I read the scriptures, I I do not see two separate programs in the scriptures between Israel and the church. I see God making one people, those who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. These people are the true Israel. In Galatians chapter 3, the key text, Paul explains the connection between the church and Israel, where he says in chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. But secondly, I believe that when Christ returns, he will establish a physical reign on earth for a thousand years and then bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And I, I think that the, uh, the mention of the two resurrections in Revelation 20 merit this view. I don't see a distinction between a spiritual resurrection and a physical, but two distinct physical resurrections, one for the righteous and one for the unrighteous. However, the nature of the millennium is not one of those things that should divide Christians. I've said in previous uh, times that uh, I will endeavour to teach the scriptures as faithfully as I can. And when we come to these moments in scripture uh, where Christians are divided, um, I will share my opinion of what I think the text says. But the nature of the millennium is not one of those things that should divide Christians. Many great stalwarts of the gospel have had differing opinions about the millennium. I can think of three contemporary strongest preachers for the gospel, most faithful men that are working today for the gospel who will happily stand on stage together, unified in a declaration of the gospel, each of those three men holding a different view of the millennium. What we believe about the millennium is not a salvation issue. And so it's not what we uh, would call an essential issue of the faith, an essential doctrine that should divide. It's not like the bodily resurrection where we can you know, agree to disagree whether the tomb's empty. That's one of those things that causes division. That's a matter of truth there. Now, that being said, it's still important to talk through these matters. If, if it's in Scripture, it's important. Now, I think the, the physical millennial reign of Christ is a huge encouragement um, because uh, we will experience God's perfect reign and peace on earth when Christ reigns as king. And we'll also see God's judgment vindicated because uh, in that time when Satan is bound, in that time when Christ reigns as king, people at the end of that will still rebel against God. And so I think it shows the sinfulness of sin. There's no, the devil made me do it. No, the devil's bound and we still see people rebelling at the end. I see those things as great encouragement. As God's redemptive reign moves from realm to realm, from his people to the millennium, to the new heavens and the new earth, we see the fulfilment of each and every promise God has made. We see more clearly the glory of Christ the King. For in him... In his person, God's dynamic rule is brought to bear in this world. The full future blessings of the kingdom of God have now broken in through the person of Jesus. 
Do you wish to experience the blessing of being under God's saving grace? Do you wish to avoid the promise of future judgment before this same holy God? A judgment that you will face clinging to your own works as a means of salvation. Well then turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Kneel before the mercy of the King and you will enter the kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are King. That there is not a single second that you have not been reigning over your creation. We thank you that you have broken in to this fallen world through the person of Jesus. Jesus being fully God and fully man, the perfect mediator between the divine and human. (coughs) Father, we thank you for your work through Christ. Father, we thank you for the promises we see in Scripture, beginning to be filled on the first arrival of Christ and then will come to completion when Christ reigns for all eternity in the fullness of time at the end. Father, we thank you for drawing us into this kingdom of yours under your saving reign. We know that it is by grace alone that you have brought us here. There is nothing that we can do of ourselves to earn our way into the kingdom. And so we pray for each one of us that you would help us to submit to the King. And Father, may it be a a blessed encouragement for us to know that you are reigning as King. In the midst of the struggles that we might personally encounter, in the midst of the things that we look on in this world, help us to remember that you are King. And that one day the whole of creation will know this to be true. In your Son the Messiah, the Christ, the King's name we pray. Amen.